Hey, Stan. So we're back again for another episode of Reimagining Cyber. Again, it's Rob here, and it's someone's special day, I understand. And they've got some plans for today, I heard, too. So what what is this, Stan? Is it, is it, is it your birthday? Is that what it, it is? is it, it is my birthday. I'm turning another year older. It's happy, always, happy birthday. Uh, at, at this point, Rob, it's not really a celebration. It's more of a wake. No, you know? come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> and... You know, and and what better way of celebrating by going to, and then going to the dentist and and making sure your wow. teeth are are all healthy. So yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, it's, you, it's, you're you're pausing there, thinking just, if that really is something you want to do way, on your birthday. Huh? When when no, it's not. But the way you <laughs> stated that, it made me think that's a really good way for me not to forget to make sure I go to the dentist put it on my birthday. So there you go. There <laughs> well, you hey, go. listen, we want to jump in and talk about. You know this, one of my favorite reports that comes out each year, and that's from the World Economic Forum. It's always released in the early part of the new year. And, and this one is the Global Cybersecurity Outlook 2024 report. Good timing, right? We, we have Davos going on this past week. A lot of good information, obviously, coming in from that kind of view of the world. And the cyber topic is always one that, obviously, we pay close attention to. The basis for the report, so everyone kind of has a background on it actually came out of the annual cybersecurity meeting that took place in mid-November. And there's about 120 or so executives that were surveyed for the report. So what we're going to do, Stan and I, we'll walk through some of the areas that were covered in it because there's a lot. We definitely you know, would say, say, go take a look at the report. It's always good information for you to obviously map into. We'll provide a link to the report and, and the notes, right? We will. Good, good, good. There's... Five main themes that came out of this year's report. The first starts with really the geopolitical and technological environment and all the changes and obviously advancements in each of those. The second is around one we've always talked about too, is the cyber skill shortage and, and gap overall. Then there's all the emphasis on cyber resilience, which I think is great. We, we love that topic, Stan. Cyber inequity and cyber ecosystem. So what we thought would make sense is kind of just you know, delving a little bit into each of those, not very deep, but maybe we'll do stand to start with the first one around more of a view of the, the, the cybersecurity kind of economy and the actual growth that uh, came out of the survey. So it's interesting to see, or maybe not that interesting to see. I think one number was a bit staggering for me, which is yes, the cybersecurity sector itself, you know, outpaced the overall global economy and the technology sector growth in 2023. But it actually outpaced the global economy by four times. Which Imagine that. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Right. It's not to say, hey, we don't expect that it's going to be, you know, moving very, very rapidly and great growth, but 4X, that's, that's pretty shocking to me. But, you know, key areas, of course, kind of tied into this is around a lot of the, the geopolitical tensions, the, you know, uncertainties in the economy, again, everything globally from that point of view, and obviously all the technological advances. AI being a very, very relevant and very kind of focused topic within that report as well. And then just, you know, what we're seeing across the the, the areas of cybersecurity and how much more of a specific role it's playing in the business and operational and executive points of view. So I think it's a great kind of connection point back into a lot of what you and I've been talking about for the past few years now and this podcast itself. Yeah, and, and one of the, the, the topics that was highlighted in the report you mentioned was cyber resilience and that is is good to see that it, it is such a emphasis in the report. You know, the 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 report observes that cyber resilience is is 
you know, built step-by-step step through, you know, prudent planning and long-term commitment to organizational change. And those that were surveyed show that, you know, that it does take patience, you know, to actually put these practices in place, but slowly they are actually having an impact, you know, that it, it, it is, you know, making a difference. Uh, the number of leaders who reported that they had, you know, confidence that their programs were more resilient had risen, you know, steadily year over year by 20%, you know, so that's, that's good news. And I think they also indicate that in parallel, the level of awareness that executives have on the business side to cyber risk and cyber crime has also markedly increased. And that, you know, may also have a, a, an impact on the ability to actually build in resilience to the organization because they understand the risk more effectively. And that it is good news. But the report does show that there's a growing divide that's growing between organizations that are well-prepared for these cyber risks and, and those that are kind of lagging behind. And and some of those factors could be, you know, again, varying landscapes for threats, you know, the, the economic conditions, the there may be specific industry regulations that maybe drive that resilience into these organizations that have to be compliant, different rates of technology adoption. So there are a number of different factors, but they do observe that there is this growing divide between those organizations that are more resilient and those that aren't. Indeed. And, and that's one of the key areas that they also um, emphasized, which was cyber inequity. And mm -hmm. so it plays right off of the point that, you know, comes across for cyber resiliency, which is, you know, larger organizations continue to mature their cyber resiliency capabilities. And again, I think that goes back to a point you were just bringing up, which is the business connection point. When, when we go back in time and think about the emphasis around cyber resilience, that was what, three to four years ago now? It was basically, right. yeah, it was four years ago now. It was basically time of the, the pandemic kicking off. And it logically made a lot of sense from the executive level, from the board, because they always thought about things from an operational resiliency point of view. So it's, it's interconnecting that with cyber aspects. And I think it started to really play a strong role. Now, unfortunately, the flip side of that story is that the, the smaller to medium-sized organizations declined and declined pretty significantly, plus 30% going in the wrong direction for you know, their capabilities around cyber resiliency. So, so you know, a lot of work to be done there, but that's kind of the emphasis, which is many of those organizations goes back to difficult to find the right resources, sometimes to afford those resources, right? The skill shortage, the technology requirements and infrastructure investments they have to make. So they're, they're a bit at times handcuffed. So again, that, that inequity really has played a very critical role. And that's one of the key emphasis, again, that they've, they've called out in this year's uh, particular report. So let's talk about generative AI, which obviously came to the fore in 23, right? You know, 50% of the executives surveyed found that, you know, or expressed that uh, advances in adversarial capabilities due to generative AI is a grave concern for them. And unfortunately, fewer than 10% of the respondents believe that generative AI will give an advantage to the defenders over the attackers in the next couple of years. And so they, they think that the equation is is in favor at the moment to the adversaries because it takes time to put in a counter set of security measures. You know, I think the 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 have and have nots again is another aspect of that inequity. You know, the those that have the resources, the larger organizations can probably adopt these 
technologies more rapidly. You know, one of the examples they gave in the report, and it, I think it's really compelling, is that sort of intersection between the the geopolitical turmoil we're seeing in the world and the impact of AI. And if you put that in the context of the use case around elections, yeah, and how you can potentially, you know, let's face it, I mean. Information warfare in itself is not a new concept, but is actually being practiced. And the you know decentralized information and resources, and the ability to apply AI in in certain and algorithms to actually influence opinions and social media, and manipulate and amplify some of these political messages or disinformation, or suppress others. I mean, it, it's going to potentially impact elections around the world as we look in twenty twenty four. Not only the United States, but many other countries. And and again, having defenses to be able to mitigate this onslaught is, is a grave concern to these executives. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I mean, they talked about, you know, just how good the quality is of deep fakes. So again, all those different elements of influence now, it is that much more difficult to ascertain what is actual, what is fake. Which, and right. so this is, yeah, this this whole emphasis of, you know, we need to do better uh, on that and put the cyber kind of guardrails in place to help us is is critical, but extremely difficult at this at this point at least. It it leads us to another area that they called out, and it's 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 nothing new. It's that importance of collaboration, sharing intelligence, threat intelligence specifically. But I think you know we've talked about this many times in the past, and we've we've seen the. I think the public sector has kind of gotten better at sharing amongst themselves. We have all the different information sharing analysis centers out there, right? FSI SAC, retail ISAC, so on and so forth. You know, the the the, the cross kind of intersection that's still a little bit kind of dicey is that whole private to public collaboration. There's a strong desire, right, to get engaged, to get involved. The FBI is doing yeah, a hell of a lot of great work. Be- it's probably gotten better, but it's still improvements needed right a lot of a lot of room to improve is what i would say yes yes because again you know things like the fbi getting out there sisa getting out there and promoting and saying you know we're here to help you here's the kind of relationship we want to have with you before an incident not during the incident right and so it's getting better but a lot of room to improve and they call that out obviously on areas you know again globally where there's there's always going to be room for improvement but it needs to be a stronger emphasis going forward for sure I was at a conference um, before, it was back in December, and CISA spoke at this conference, and he was a local representative. He, it, was, it, was a, it was the CISA representative that had the uh, TOLA, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. et cetera. And he, one of the things he did was shared the map as far as where CISA has placed resources around the country to interact with others. And he gave a, a basically briefing of cyber attacks that are occurring in, you know, the, the total region and things that you could do. So I mean, that was a great example of a public way of engaging that I, I hadn't seen before. I've, I've seen the FBI present in some of these, these forums, but to have CISA out there and actually have field agents that are responsible, similar to what the FBI has done, I thought was a good step. Another, another big point was around that, again, alignment between the cybersecurity side of the house and and the business executives, right? And I mentioned a minute ago that there's a raised awareness that cybersecurity is is needed and it, it has to be integrated into the broader, you know, business strategy. 29% of organizations reported in the in the survey to being materially affected by cyber incidents in the past 12 months. That's pretty significant. 
and you know, and more CEOs and business leaders are becoming involved in in deciding what to prioritize and shifting to a more of a holistic cybersecurity approach. And 93% of the respondents considered leaders in cyber resilience trust their CEO to speak externally about cyber risk. So they've done the mm. job of helping educate the upper executives enough to have confidence that they're able to go out there and have that kind of discussion. So that's, that's a, I think that's a good thing. I think more alignment needs to be done. We've talked in the past about how also the the, the business, I mean, the, the security side of the house, the CISO, to be more effective has to be more business focused and, and mm-hmm. ensuring that they're supporting the business goals and objectives. And so I think the, that that's, that's occurring more frequently, whether or not they truly have a seat at the table is, is still a question. Yeah, very true. Very true. I think another aspect that I was looking at within the report that kind of connects into that point you were just discussing is, so with the, again, 120 executives asked, so it ranges from, you know, there are business leaders there. It's not just a cyber you know, leadership audience only. And so if you break up the, the business leaders from the cyber leaders, there was a question posed to them. And the question was basically, what impact from a cyber attack are you most concerned about? And they had four options to pick from, kind of balance the, the weighting on that. So the first you know, one was around, there's going to be more regulatory scrutiny if there's an attack against us. The second option is, hey, there, there's more of a direct operational disruption to our business operations. Um, the third was around financial impact and loss. And then that fourth was around their brand reputation going forward, right? So so what's 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 good is that the balance is relatively the same when you look at each of those two audiences and how they responded to those kind of weighting the percentages. And so, you know, the the, the lowest, the lowest focal point, which I'm happy with, is the potential scrutiny from more regulatory pressure because of this. Right? So so good. That's not the concern. Like the concern was really very heavily weighted on the operational disruption to our business, to our operations, right? And then the direct financial loss, and then very closely followed by potential to the brand and you know, going forward, the reputational impact as well. So you think that balance is right? That even though regulation can be a driver, that they, it can they, be a driver, but it's not what they view as the oh, because this happened to us, now all of a sudden we're going to get whacked from a regulatory perspective, right? It's more about hey, it's the operational aspect, it's the things that can happen to us financially. Maybe they kind of bucket at that in the financial loss potentially, but it's also our reputation or brand. Again, it's good from that financial loss perspective that they look at that holistically. So they could be including the regulatory scrutiny and penalties maybe within there as well, Stand, I'm not sure. But my point is, it's a relative close balance between the audience of traditional business leaders and cyber leaders and how they responded. So that's a good kind of point going forward, that sense of partnership and truly understanding the business aspects of things. The other thing that was called out was the impact relative to the the risks associated to your ecosystem, right? Your third-party relationships. Mm-hmm. So a key aspect of that is obviously the the tie into all of these different interconnection points for other organizations that you partner with to deliver different products to you back Third to parties, market. supply chain, right? Yep. So all of it is very much a key aspect that we've been talking about for a while. Very emph- heavily emphasized within this particular report as well this past year as a point of very close scrutiny of those interconnections. Are they secured? What are they doing? The third-party assessments that they're each conducting on each other now. So that kind of sense of going back and forth and a lot of kind of growth within that area as well. Uh, but over 40% of organizations you know, attributed an actual attack or incident that occurred to them that came through the third party. 
And that number is not going down by any means. And again, more, again, focus and emphasis in this area. If that's uh, the weak link and the attackers can go through a third party to get to their ultimate target, I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing advantages of taking that approach, right? I mean, a large organization may have a lot of good funding to put in place strong security controls, but the third party they're using may be a, a much smaller organization, and so they can leverage that. So we're seeing that time and time mm-hmm. again. Interesting, you know, again, this is a, another thing that we've been hitting on the podcast was cyber insurance was talked about in the report. As we've discussed with Dan Bowden from Marsh, who was a CISO at Marsh on episode 39, it's a great way for organizations to potentially defray financial costs of the inevitable cyber attack, right? And so it's part of that whole cyber resilience strategy organizations are putting in place. But, you know, at, at, at the same time, you know, it it it, it, it does no, show another uh, disparity, right? Because some organizations can no longer afford the cost of cyber insurance. And I think the report showed that, you know, the, the, those that actually surveyed indicated uh, yeah, a 24% drop as far as those organizations were able to obtain cyber insurance. And, you know, at the larger organizations, it, it may be more viable than, than smaller ones. It depends on your security budget and, and where you want to spend your, your funds. So it, 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 you know, as, as the number of attacks have, you know, increased and the insurers are, are locking down what it takes to, to, to actually obtain it, you know, higher requirements and costs, it's going to be less viable as an option. But another thing in that whole area is, uh, you know, we talked about regulations a minute ago. There certainly was recognition. I think I said 60% of executives agree that cyber and privacy regulations are an effective way of helping reduce risk in the organization's ecosystem. Yeah. And I think like 20% decrease in risk based on the last year. But, you know, it it, it is an effective way of as driving things, but at the same time, it's not necessarily, as we've talked about before, equate to security, right? As right. far as the threats you're dealing with. There needs to be also a, a greater effort in harmonizing regulations um, around the world because it's it's difficult for organizations to comply to all um, this, this fragmented set of regulations around the, the fabric we've got around the world. Just very difficult. It is. It is the patchwork, right? Of, it's uh, a patchwork. That's the right word to use. Of regulations. Yeah, I think that's that. That's a great point. But the the other thing, it's the because the costs are so high. I wonder how many people are start organizations. I should say are starting to actually you know self insure. Like let's put this amount of money aside, associated to potential impacts incidents that we have to account for. Right. So you know again that that wasn't in there, but something that that likely is is, is it's happening. probably occurring. And, and and again, smaller organizations can't do that. Right. Right. So I think again, a lot of great detail in that report. Again, you know, it's one of my favorites. So we will share that. <laughs> it is in the link, and everyone can go back and take a look at it in depth. Uh, it, also, if you're interested, you can always go back and hear from our good friend Marco Pineda back in episode 10, who uh, was the former head of cyber uh, technology and innovation at the World Economic Forum. So good conversation, Stan, one of my favorite topics of the year to cover. So I'm happy we were able to get that on the slate and I hope everyone enjoyed the episode today. And, and I'm just thrilled that you didn't sing happy birthday to me on the on the podcast. I, I really that's, appreciate that. That's the closing. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. Take care now. 
Hello, producer Ben here, and Robin Stan mentioned a couple of previous episodes there, one of which was number 39, called Under the Hood of Cyber Insurance. It featured Dan Bowden, CISO at Marsh, the world's largest insurance broker and risk advisor. We had this thread going the other day about what happens when you're attacked by a nation state or suffer a catastrophic outage due to that. You know, so so when uh, insurance companies that cover flood or, or or earthquakes, you know, there's a certain point if the event is bad enough, they're in a way kind of rooting for the federal government to declare a disaster because what happens? Then FEMA covers certain things. There isn't a cyber FEMA. That was Dan Bowden, Global CISO at Marsh. As per normal, this is when I ask you to share the podcast episode with a friend. If nothing else, think of it as your birthday present to Stan. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.